Okay, as I said, we are in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 6. The topic under discussion is God disciplining His own children. Hebrews 12. And we just started this discussion last week with verse 5. And I'll read that and I'll read verse 6. It says, And you've forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by Him. For those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines, and He scourges every son whom He receives. As we pointed out last week, this is a quotation of the Old Testament from he- or, or an allusion, uh, with some, some of it being a quotation from Proverbs 3, 11 and 12. Proverbs 3, 11 and 12. I think I had somebody read that last week. And we mentioned also last week that the sufferings that the community may be going through, which was causing them to, some of them to, uh, uh, want to go back, to, to back away from their faith, to go back to temple Judaism and the temple sacrifices and the high priests and all the things that were still going on at that time. And Hebrews has five warnings against that. And so now as it comes into this section, chapter 12 of this exhortation about the Lord's discipline, the point is made that the things that are making them perhaps tempted to backslide are actually things God intended for their spiritual well-being. And that the Christian life is a life in which because God has received us, through the adoption of sons. Therefore, we come under the Lord's discipline because sons all receive discipline. It's the nature of the family relationship. And um, it says in verse 6, which is the passage we're going to start with today, for those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines. So we have a further understanding of this here, and that is that God's discipline is a sign of His love. Not a sign that... God doesn't care about us or He forgot about us, but it's a sign of His love for us. The word for discipline in the Greek, paideia, I have a definition of that here. The biblical concept of discipline, paideia, combines the nuances of training, instruction, and firm guidance with those of reproof, correction, and punishment. The notion of God as a disciplinarian was derived from the parent-child relationship. As a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. Deuteronomy 8.5. That, that's an Old Testament allusion. Deuteronomy 8.5. God is the loving Father who desires only good for His children, but who, know, <clears throat> excuse me, but who knows that obedience to His revealed will is the condition for realizing this goal. Adversity and hardships are to be recognized as means designed by God to call His people to faithful and obedient sonship. I mentioned in my last CIC article something about this. I I wrote about this idea of spiritual disciplines that are gaining amazing popularity in the evangelical movement. And these ideas that were once the domain of Roman Catholicism are now finding their way into evangelicalism through the teachings of certain uh, prominent leaders like Richard Foster and Dallas Willard. Now, the idea is that uh, discipline, as they describe it, is something that we do to ourselves by using techniques 
that spiritual masters have determined work. Okay? And so, and these disciplines are not uh, concrete. They're, there's kind of an amorphous list that may change. And as I pointed out in my article, uh, generally these things are like solitude, um, uh, voluntary poverty, yeah, fasting, uh, things that we decide to impose on ourselves in order to bring discipline. And what I pointed out in my article is that as a matter of fact, the problem is we don't know what we need as far as other than what God has revealed for all of us. Whatever the Bible says we all need to do, that's right. That's what we should do. That's God's means. But things that are not revealed in the Bible that may be of some benefit, who knows, that's between God and the individual Christian, and he's in charge of it. And he imposes his discipline upon us as we need, because as a perfectly wise and loving father, he knows what we need. And every person is unique in that regard. So what I said in my article is that taking this into our own hands is presumptuous. Where we're assuming, assuming we, we'd be more holy if we uh, took an oath of, let's say, like the, the Catholics have an oath of chastity, and so then they go join a monastery, and then they feel like they're doing works of supererogation, okay, meaning going above and beyond what ordinary Christians are required. And they assume that by living in a monastery in poverty and chastity, meaning they don't get married, and uh, obedience, meaning some man on the earth tells you what to do and you do whatever they tell you, that that makes you more pious and that God's more pleased with you and that you have a higher order of spirituality than ordinary Christians. And they have to give that kind of a um, feeling because why else would you want to go be miserable? You know, you got to get something out of it. <laughs> so what you get out of it, you get to feel like you're a better Christian than everybody else. But as a matter of fact, I'm, I, I'm claiming that it's presumptuous. We're taking things into our own hands that ought to be in God's hands. And if God really does know that we need to be poor to be better Christians, He's very He can arrange that. Oh, he's done that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know how that works, did? <laughs> can anybody say Amen? <laughs> and uh, maybe the Lord wants to um, discipline us by giving us riches and see if we'll be good stewards. I think we'd rather sign up for that, right? <laughs> but the fact is that God's in charge. Yes, Brian. <clears throat> What's your opinion then on like take fasting for example? Do you, is there any uh, is there any good benefit of that? Well, there's a there's no command in the New Testament that that's something that's obligatory or there's certain designated fast days. Like the only one they had in in Judaism really was the Day of Atonement, and 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 they got the idea that that was to be a fast because of uh, the passage in Deuteronomy says that day you shall afflict your souls. Okay, so they and then and then the Pharisees are the in their oral tradition they added other days, and they noticed that Jesus' disciples weren't keeping their their particular version of fasting. And Jesus said, "Well, the while he's with them, they won't, but afterwards they will." So we could anticipate that Christians would fast and do at times, but there's nothing obligatory to it. It's not commanded as a means of grace. All right, and somebody fasting should not get the idea that somehow they have they're more pious or they got a superior spirituality than somebody that that doesn't. Think about other things that we do know more about. What about food laws, for example? 
we are free to eat or not eat, right? And if somebody chose to not eat meat, they're free to do so. And they have total liberty for that. But if somebody decided to not eat meat, and that came into the church and um, judged everyone else as sinners because they don't do the same, that would be wrong. Let's take other things that we know that were instituted in the Old Covenant. What about circumcision? That was instituted as a covenant necessity in the Old Covenant. I would say that in the New Covenant, it's a matter of liberty. Parents can have their male children circumcised if they so choose. But if they command it under threat of being considered a sinner for not doing it, which is what was going on in the Galatian church, Paul rebukes them as having fallen from grace and as having left Christ. So these things that we can choose to do within the realm of liberty, all right, are between us and the Lord. And if we take them as a matter of Christian liberty in our own, for whatever our own reasons, what we do, whether it's fasting or um, eating certain foods and other foods, if, we, if that's just what we do, because that's what we choose to do, we're free. Right? But if we command this to other people or tell people that if you don't do this, you're not going to be the kind of Christian God wants you to be, we're sinning by doing that teaching. And then, and you can, you can glean that from the book of Galatians. Yes, Mike. Uh, one issue is like alcoholic beverages. You know, uh, we've been in churches where, you know, there, it's an absolute normal to you know, take any alcohol. Uh, they said that, uh, you know, when Jesus drank wine in the Bible, it was grape juice with no alcohol. And they take this to an extreme degree. And we met some Christians from Italy, and, and they uh, they said that in Italy, you know, uh, everybody has wine with every meal. I mean, it's just part of the local cuisine. But they make a big fetish about Christmas trees, and that's... It's a sin to have Christmas trees. <laughs> There's not a high incidence of alcoholism in Italy, so and they drink wine, but they would be, uh, you know, uh, scandalized if somebody had a Christmas tree in their house. So I, I think uh, some of these things are, like you say, you know, not to be drunk and uh, given over to dissipation and stuff like that. But uh, you can, you can. You know, raise the bar uh, higher and higher, and then, like you say, then you start looking at yourself as better than, than the right. guy. Yeah, the point. The point is, um, the Bible is authoritative, and whatever it declares, that's the law of God, the moral law of God. Going beyond Scripture and making ourselves lawgivers isn't pious. It's sinful. Now, I, I wish I would have understood that in 1971 because it would have saved me about 10 years of sorrow. I went and joined a Christian community where everybody had to sell everything they have, give away all the money, you know, and live for the kingdom of God. I'm reading a book about a bunch of people that did this 100 years ago and it's bringing back memories. Oh man. <laughs> Unbelievable. But we, what were we gaining? I lived in a Christian community for five years with no money, no income, 
and volunteering all my time, and I thought I was extremely dedicated to God and to the kingdom of God. I was really dead. My teachers at North Central Bible College warned me not to do it, but I wouldn't listen to them because I didn't think they were spiritual. And uh, I should have listened to them. <laughs> and what what I found out is, it, what, what did we gain by having nothing, by living in a community and not owning anything? We gained the idea that we had a higher order of spirituality, that we were God's elite frontline troops, and that people just working a job, going to church, raising their family, were like these little handmaidens or little sisters or little brothers that really didn't have a, much of a spirituality. They were carnal. But as a matter of fact, I was totally in error. And thank God I got delivered out of it before it got worse. I'm reading this book about these people that it got a lot worse than what we ended up in. So don't don't get sucked in. Yes? It wasn't all group, was it? Because it was my ministry. No, it wasn't his group. There were several of them around in the 70s of these Christian communities. It was kind of the thing to do in the 70s. I suppose you could say that if it was the 70s and you're young, you had to do something stupid. <laughs> so I did a religious stupid thing. <laughs> yeah, that's when Jim Jones had his thing, uh, the Kool-Aid line. And Well, the, my point is this. Any departure from the authority of Scripture, whether it's getting more claiming liberty you don't have, being more being sinful when the Bible says, no, you can't do this, or making laws that the Bible doesn't make and imposing them on people, both things are sinful. The Corinthians were licentious. They were, they were claiming liberties they didn't have, and Paul rebuked them. The Galatians were legalists. They were making laws that God hadn't made. Paul rebuked them even more sternly. But it's not like you have to go into this ditch or the other one. There's a, there's a road to stay on. And the road is the authority of Scripture and in any valid implications that can be drawn from Scripture. So that's what we try to do by God's grace. Open up the Scriptures together and understand what it says and what are valid implications. And then as far as our ability, as you know, we don't live up to what we know it says. Right? Okay, so it's, why try to live up to what it doesn't say if we can't live up to what it does say? The discipline of the Lord is to help us live up to what it does say. So let's focus on that. Let's have it our aim to live a way that would be pleasing to the Lord as revealed in Scripture and not beyond Scripture. And then uh, trusting that God disciplines us. Now, how does he do this? This is in the hands of an almighty God who has all of the resources of heaven and earth at his disposal, who is motivated by love, who has received us into his family. So uh, there's coming up later as an analogy between the earthly family. We had fathers that disciplined us for a short time as they saw fit. They may did a, Maybe they did a good job or a bad job, but they did something, hopefully. If, and um, the fact is that God is infinitely greater than our earthly parents, and he has our best interest in mind. Now, how does he do that? How does, what does it look like? Well, you don't understand what it looks like until you're done with it or you're through it in some ways. And in my life, all kinds of things, from 1992 to probably 97, 98 was the most difficult time in my entire life. It was horrible. It seemed like everything that was important to me was being taken away from me. Um, and 
what happened was God used it to change me. And I, I would not give that up, what he did during those years in the early 90s. But it was a miserable, hor- horrible time when I was going through it. It was, a, it was I was not a happy camper. Bert, I remember one time back then, Bert was my buddy all the way through all of that. And, and one time he came up and he says, how are you doing? And then he looked at me and he says, no, nah, don't answer that. <laughs> <laughs> we were standing right over there, Bert. So I don't want to hear your bloom anymore. <laughs> so <laughs> Sometimes you don't want to hear. But it's the discipline of the Lord. Now, what is he trying to do in it with his discipline? Well, I think ultimately, I know for me, it was that we, not, that we wouldn't trust ourselves, that we d- depend on him. And that we'd get over this idea that I can do all things and I got all, I got all wisdom and I can solve whatever problem comes my way. I, I thought that way my whole life until I got to the point where I, there was, I couldn't solve any problems. The problems I had, there, there wasn't a single thing I could do that would make any of them go away. And I, I hate it when that happens. <laughs> but ultimately, I realized that we have to trust God. And, and like Paul said, his, the Lord told him, my um, gra- grace is sufficient for you. And God's power is perfected in weakness. I think your illustration is a perfect example of God disciplining a person rather than a person disciplining themselves. With your example, you probably would have bailed out a long time ago had you been in charge of your discipline. Well, yeah, I don't know what I would have done if I was in charge of it. I definitely would. Well, some of the things that happened um, were, were so bad that you would never choose it. You would never ask for it or make it happen. You know? So, yes, Mike. Well, I think if you're in charge of your own discipline, you always tend to discipline yourself as something you can handle. Yeah, or what, you, you emphasize what you're already good at. Yeah. I can still feel good about myself with down on my neighbor. And... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Like the guy praying in Jesus' example, Lord, I thank Thee I'm not like other men, like this sinner over here. (laughs) I can feel good about myself and look down on my neighbor. (laughs) I like that, Mike. (laughs) But uh, that's exactly what the Lord's disciplining us to get rid of. (laughs) All right. Um, There's some cross-references. By the way, the reason we don't have the little mic is it, 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 it sprouted legs and walked off. So, and, and I don't know, uh, Keith said good, so I'm, he's the, he's the prime suspect. <laughs> no, I don't think he <laughs> I could talk about him, he's in Paris or somewhere right now, so. So I don't know where that mic went, so we're back to just voice, uh, voices here. So, um, well maybe I'll get people close to my mic. Dean, Dean, Deuteronomy 8-5 and Brian. Psalm 119.71, Denise, Jeremiah 10.24, and Linda, James 5.11. Deuteronomy 8.5, I think, is maybe uh, an Old Testament background to this very concept that we're talking about here. Deuteronomy 8.5. Thou shalt also consider in thine heart that as a man chastens his son, so the Lord thy God chastens thee. So as a man chastens his son, so the Lord thy God chastens thee. So God, this is an Old Testament idea. 
And you can see it in the wilderness wanderings that God was disciplining his people before they could go into the promised land. Okay, and then uh, Psalm 119.71. It is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Wow, that's an interesting one. I wonder if Kenneth Copeland knows that verse. (laughs) It's good for me that I've been afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Okay, Um, Jeremiah 10.24. Oh, Lord, correct me, but with justice, not in your anger, lest you bring me to nothing. Correct me, but with justice, not in your anger, lest you bring me to nothing. That was Jeremiah 10.24. That's an interesting um, distinction, by the way. God doesn't pour His wrath out on His own people. God's wrath is directed against sin. If we come to Him by faith, the blood of Jesus washes away our sins, and we escape God's wrath because of the blood. Right? That's how we overcome the accuser. They overcame Him by the blood of the Lamb. But, discipline is another matter. It isn't God exacting punishment on us, but it's God bringing necessary correction so that we might become more like Christ. So and it's not an expression of wrath, it's an expression of the love one has for sons and daughters. So that's, that's a very good distinction there. And then James 5 and verse 11. Indeed, we count them blessed to endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord. But the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. Okay, so the, the end intended by the Lord is that we would be finding His mercy and compassion. And it gave Job as an example of somebody who endured. So God's sons and daughters should endure discipline knowing that a loving Heavenly Father who has our best interests in mind is in charge of the whole process. And that He's going to get us into the image of Christ through this whole lifelong process. And not just the lifelong process to become like Christ, but I think also to equip us for service now. That we would be better able to share the gospel, to, to, to have compassion for other people, to minister, to use the gifts He's given us, because those who have been through discipline are more suited for their job. You can certainly see that with Children, it's not, a, it's, it's not hard to see that someone who grows up in a family where their, their mother and father are both expecting a lot from them, requiring them to work, requiring discipline of them, that, children, that that's a huge benefit and that children from such families have a major advantage over someone who would grow up um, without discipline, whether it's being fatherless or just... Maybe a parents that have read the wrong books, you know. Um, like, what was that one that wrecked families back in the 60s? Spock? Yeah. Well, the, you know, the, the, the idea that, well, the goodness of our, you know, the goodness is just built into kids and you just let them express it, it'll come out. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> it's the opposite of, of the Proverbs, right? Yes, Denise. What's interesting with that is that the kids who grow up without discipline love it at that time, but grow up chaotic. Right. The ones under discipline don't like it. Right. But they grow up very productive and able to flourish on their own. Absolutely. And in society. Absolutely. During the time, it's, not, it's the opposite of what they, the outcome is. 
Yeah, you know, my daughter used to manage uh, fast food restaurants when she was younger. And um, it was interesting getting, hiring, because you're hiring kids right out of, whether they're in high school or whatever, you could tell which ones had never been disciplined. So having a job was the first time anybody ever required them to be somewhere at a certain time and that somebody else is depending on you and that you, and that it isn't fun all day long. Okay, you don't put squirting ketchup on burgers, you know, <laughs> or whatever it is you're doing. And so she, some, in some cases where kids were coming from families where there was no parental discipline, the restaurant manager was the first person ever to bring discipline to certain kids. And they, they had a hard time with it. But the, the kids coming from families that were, had been giving discipline all along, they'd walk right into a job. And good. Good to go. Here we go. Or, or they end up in college and they find out how tough that is. Yet, you, you know, you have to actually study or you flunk. Shock. <laughs> I took care of a two-year-old um, when I was 12 years old, and uh, I noticed they were reading Spock. And um, I was wondering why the child was really naughty. And then, <laughs> They didn't discipline the child, and finally I was given permission to discipline, and as soon as they went out, she threw those large plastic houses on her six-month-old brother's head, and uh, so I stuck her in the corner, and after that, she called me mom. Oh, <laughs> really? So she knew she needed it. Yeah, they ultimately know they need it. The kids know they need discipline, and, and the analogy is, so do we, and we should love the Lord because he disciplines us. It should cause that same kind of reaction. Well, it says here in verse 7 of Hebrews 12, for it, it is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Now, this is a rhetorical question. The implied answer is none. Now, that doesn't mean there's never been a father who hasn't disciplined, but in normal course of a family, the father's going to discipline the kid. All right, because that's the way it ought to be. So um, God does so various ways, but the one under consideration here is with adverse circumstances. Um, and I think in some way, some ways or another, all discipline does involve adverse circumstances. If you're going to join the army and get prepared to go to be a soldier, how do they train you? Do they send you to Hawaii and tell you to go surfing and? To, Snorkel and to lay on the beach. No, that's not how they do it. No, you were in the service. How did they discipline you? Harshly. Harshly. <laughs> they purposely put you into adverse circumstances, right? Yes, they did. That same way with athletic training or uh, being a, like I said, being a college student trying to learn academics. Anything where the hoped outcome is that you would excel under difficulty, requires training under adverse circumstances so that you are able to endure when you run into them in real life. So adverse circumstances are a means that God uses to discipline His sons. Now there's a little outline here, verses 7 through 11, I want to just lay out so you can see how the thought's developing here in Hebrews 12. The outline goes as this, it's a very simple one. The necessity of discipline, Hebrews 12, 7, and 8. 
the necessity of discipline. Hebrews uh, 12, 9, the appropriate response to discipline. Okay, the appropriate response to discipline. And then Hebrews 12, 10, and 11, the benefits of di- discipline. So we have the necessity, the appropriate response, and then the benefits uh, for those who respond as they should. That's our outline. Now, it says, it's for discipline that you endure. The, the word endure in the Greek is either, can be translated either present indicative, which means you are continually enduring, or imperative here, which probably is what it is, because this is an exhortation that you, it is for discipline that you endure, which means imperative, do it. That's what you need to do. So God deals you with you with sons, so there's a good reason to endure it. Um, it's corrective. It's, it involves adverse circumstances. And those who are willing to endure show their fidelity to God, their obedience to God, the, the validity of their faith, that nothing they believe that nothing will separate us from the love of God, and that whatever we go through, we need to entrust ourselves in the hands of God, who is our loving Father, and believe for Him to do the best. And we're free to pray and ask God to take it away. Paul did with his thorn in the flesh. You never know what the answer might be, but you can, you're, you're, you can ask God. Say, okay, God, I've learned enough. Take it away. <laughs> well, maybe you have. <laughs> okay, uh, Mike. Don't you think when you're going through this discipline, um, the fact that you turn to God is part of what the discipline is? All about Absolutely. To get you to do. I mean, you refocus, and instead of looking, you know, going astray because we all want to go astray. Every day we get up, we get the world comes in, and you know, we get sidetracked. So when this discipline comes, and you know, so we can go to the throne of grace. We can pray Amen. and go boldly because Christ is an advocate for us there. And just that one act is a is a reorientation again. And now, uh, you know, for however long it lasts, I suppose until you know uh, the pain goes away, then you want to stray again. But I mean, every time you reorient and, and go to the Lord, um, your relationship with Him is being uh, uh, built up. And you know. Sometimes, you know, if, if you've gone through all kinds of uh, problems, there's that one woman that was blind her whole life, and she wrote about um, a thousand different hymns. I can't remember her name. But they asked her, if you had to be born again uh, with, with sight, would you choose that? And she said, no, I wouldn't choose it because um, the Lord has blessed me with my blindness, and I've been able to respond to that uh, by writing all this music. And you know, she had a real good ear for music. Hmm. Uh, so this this deficit, this discipline that she had right from birth, uh, she considered a blessing because of what it led to. At the end, you can see it after the fact. After the fact, it all makes sense, but during it is very. It's, um, well, it says that later here. 
No discipline for verse 11. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. But afterwards, but, but, but yet for those who are trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. So we're not, you know, we're not masochistic. You know, I love pain. It doesn't seem joyous. It says that right in the Bible. But nevertheless, there's some fruit that's going to come. Here's some cross references. Um, Karen, Proverbs 13, 24. And Stephan, Proverbs 23, 13, and 14. And Levon, Proverbs 29, 15. And Kathy, Acts 14, 22. Acts 14, 22. Okay, Karen, Proverbs 13, 24, when you get a chance. There is a lot about this in the Proverbs, by the way. It's very thematic in Proverbs, discipline. And, and also raising children. And uh, the children need discipline. Okay, uh, Proverbs 13, 24. Okay, he who withholds the rod hates his son. I'm glad my dad loved me. <laughs> okay, um, Proverbs 23, 13, and 14. Yeah, 23, 13, and 14. Do not hold back discipline from the child, although you... Strike him with a rod, he will not die. You shall strike him with a rod, rescue his soul from Sheol. There it says you'll rescue his soul from Sheol. He won't die. <laughs> Proverbs uh, 29.15, Lee. Was that the right one? Did I skip you, Leif? Oh, I'm sorry, Levon. You get one later. I'm sorry. I'm confused. Okay, Levon had 29.15. The rod and rebuke give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. Wow. You know, um, that's something, I was just reading an editorial in a Star and Trib, but that's something that they can empirically prove. Yeah, that, that, that as far as crime and, and, and what have you, that fatherless children are much more at risk. They're much they're much more vulnerable. And they end up oftentimes getting in with other criminal type people and bring shame to their mother. Yes. Oh my sister had this friend in Washington DC and our son was really misbehaving in um grocery stores and she started spanking him and uh, another woman just looked at her and gave her some really bad crusty looks and she said, Don't look at me like that, honey. I'm spanking him now so he doesn't shoot you later. <laughs> <laughs> I'm spanking him now so he doesn't shoot you later. <laughs> <laughs> that's a that's a good one, Kathy. <laughs> Acts fourteen twenty two. Strengthening the souls of disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith, and saying, "We must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God." We must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. That was Acts fourteen twenty two. I think the King James, through much afflictions, you must enter the kingdom. But it, but interesting in that passage, Paul was actually strengthening the souls of the disciples by telling them, through many tribulations you enter the kingdom. Now how would that saying that to somebody strengthen their soul? It probably would strengthen their soul at the time, but as you say, looking back at all 
all these tribulations that one goes through, then the, then you can see how your soul is strengthened. But to initially say that to somebody, probably wouldn't strengthen their soul unless, you know... Okay. Well, if they listened to it, it would help. Okay. Um, see, I, I'll, let me tell you why I think that's the case. Because the common conception of the kingdom, and I don't believe in kingdom now at all. That's a loathsome doctrine that we're going to establish the kingdom without Jesus. But the idea, especially, is that, well, when the kingdom comes, then that's when everything will get better. God's enemies will be destroyed. You know, the, and all the promises you read in the Old Testament about the kingdom would give the idea of an idyllic, wonderful place. The lion lies down with the lamb. They beat their swords into plowshares. And there's all these promises. So the, but that's not how it works uh, until after Christ returns. So during, after the, between the first advent and the second advent, there is, uh, entering the kingdom in the sense of coming to God by faith. All right means you go into difficulties and afflictions. And it's not a sign that the kingdom isn't real. It's a sign that it's not yet. So there's a process of entering that is not consummated until the return of Christ. And during that time, afflictions are the rule. Well, anything that's the truth is beneficial. So if this is the truth... You know, if somebody comes up to you, the doctor says, you got cancer and you got six months to live. You know, now i got to deal with this. But it still uh, gives you what's actually uh, real, and then you can, you can uh, adjust to that, even if it's just maybe, you know, living your last six months with your family and, and getting your affairs in order, whatever it is. And so anything that's truthful is beneficial to the hearer. And that's why when we raise kids or when we preach the gospel, the truth is beneficial just because it is the truth. And, you know, we can rail against it or we can wish something else, um, but because the truth is permanent and it, it has effect and it will prove out eventually, that's what we have to be oriented to. And if we got any kind of deception, you know, we're going to be surprised by the truth surfacing and, <laughs> and becoming manifest before us. Okay. You know, I think that's a good point, Mike. What is, is true, whether we believe it or not. Right. So if you believe deception, you're still living in a world that's, that's not the way you think. And the reality will come crashing in. And so another implication of what you're saying, Mike, Church leaders, pastors, elders, whoever is responsible for any given church, are doing the flock a huge disservice by giving them anything less than the full truth. Okay? Because the full truth is the way things are. So you can make people feel good temporarily by telling them little platitudes and human wisdom. You know, life, you know, life is going to be wonderful and whatever they want to hear. But that saying that and believing that doesn't make it actually true. You still live in the world that God made, and things are still the way they really are. And uh, it would be like this person that went to the Universalist church that I was talking to, and she says, um, well, I, I'm going to a new church with my boyfriend. I said, well, which one's that? She goes, we're going to the Christ Universalist church. I said, well, why are you going there? And she says, because they say everybody's going to heaven, and I like that. <laughs> 
No, okay, but see, that, but doesn't that illustrate? I told she, she says, "Well, I see you don't approve of that." And I said, "No, it's not true. Everybody is not going to heaven." But see, well, she didn't like what I was saying, but she liked what the pastor of the Universalist Church says. But what is reality? Someday you maybe go through your whole life believing that Universalist doctrine, but someday. There's a final judgment, and the names are going to be either in the book or not in the book. And the reality is going to come crashing in. So what's more loving, to tell people what they want to hear, everybody's going to go to heaven, or tell them the truth? Unless you repent, you shall all likewise perish. It's more loving to tell the truth. So, absolutely. There's no more... uh, uh, if you really love people, you will tell them what really is, as as is appropriate. Current. Like the whole deal with like in Canada, they made uh, speaking out against homosexuality hate speech, and when you're talking about stuff like that, and it's the premise that they start from is that everyone can have their own truth. Therefore, you can't tell me anything that I'm doing is wrong because that's not kind. But in truth, the most loving thing you can possibly do. Is you know every time you, you plead with them and show no, this is wrong, preach the law. And I mean, you, I forget who gave the example originally, but if some if, if a, a thief came into your room and was going to steal something, and you held up a gun, said no, I don't believe in guns, shoot him anyway. <laughs> yeah, I got that one from Norm Geisler. Your dad and I call that Norm Geisler's gun. I'm going to use it at the debate. I'm debating uh, one of the emergent church leaders here on uh, Friday the 20th. And they don't believe in you know, boundaries, absolute truth, things like that. I don't care. It's still true, so I'm going to use it. Yes? That, that, that boundary is really easy. Give me your money. My, my truth is that you really don't have any. I have yours, so therefore it's mine anyhow, so give me your money. That, then all of a sudden you're outside that. There's Yeah. I like that. <laughs> well, anyhow, okay, so the fact is, uh, thanks, Mike, that was a good insight. The truth is what it is, and we're better off knowing it, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. Would you all agree with that? We're better off knowing the truth than something that may sound good, but it's not true, because the real world still is going to continue to be the real world, yes. The original question to this, to this uh, discussion was whether the apostles believed it or whether they accepted it. Well, they, 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 I agree, absolutely, obviously, what the truth is, but the apostles believed it for, or may not have believed it, but for a different reason. They were, they were expecting the kingdom of God on earth. It wasn't until Pentecost that they realized that this was all true. So I say, looking back, and say, then it was totally revealed to them. What yeah, the yeah they, they didn't totally get it until after the resurrection and the ascension. And the coming of the Holy Spirit. So even today, we don't totally get all the truths. I mean, we hope we do because we're studying the Word. But many times when we do hear the truth, we don't accept it. Well, right. That's why we need the, our minds renewed by the Word of God. The Word of God is powerful. It's active. And um, the more of the truth of the Word of God the people are fed, they will grow in grace and knowledge, and God will change their lives. That's going to be my sermon. I mean... One Timothy, I mean, First uh, Thessalonians two, and it talks about the power of God because these people in Thessalonica received the word, even though the Jews hated them and the Gentiles hated them. They were persecuted by everybody in town, 
but because they received it for what it is, the message of God, it says that that message is powerfully changing their lives. It was that work in them to change them. The Word of God has the power to change us. Human wisdom has is powerless. It can amuse us. It can entertain us. But it can't change us. But I better save something for my sermon. Yes. The illustration of the soldier going through training. But if we accept God's discipline as training, we are much better off prepared for, for the battles in the future. Right. And, the, and why, would a, why would a soldier be willing to go through that? Especially in America, now we don't have a draft, so you don't... Right, because the soldier knows that someday there's going to be hostile people wanting to kill me. All right, and so I need to do this now so that I'm prepared when a much worse situation arises. And and this is the same way with us spiritually. There are hostile forces that want to kill us, and the attack is against the gospel and against the truth. All right, and if we're not trained, we don't have our senses trained to discern good and evil, as it says in Hebrews chapter five. Because we don't want the meat of the word, Hebrews 5, and we don't want to hear the whole counsel of God, then what we will be doing is sitting ourselves out there to be picked off by the enemy. And that's exactly what's going on today in, uh, almost across the board in evangelicalism is that we're leaving people vulnerable to the enemy because of not wanting to give them what they need to hear uh, for various reasons. Now, it says here, we're in verse 8, but if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. That's a strong word. Yeah, there's King James. I know what it says in the King James, but we're not supposed to say that in church. Well, it's in the Bible, then what can you say? I remember when I was a little kid, I, I you know, I didn't... I, my parents told me what words we could use and not use. I must, I don't know, I've been having memories of when I was like four years old lately. I don't know why. But I remember one time coming home from church and I says, I says to my parents, well, you told us we can't say hell, but the pastor said it. <laughs> I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't figure that out. How do you tell a four-year-old that? Well, the pastor said it because he doesn't want you to go there. <laughs> when you tell it to your friends, you're telling them that you want them to go there. That's bad. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I don't know how that works. Yeah, I know what it says there in the, in the King James. Then you are illegitimate children. Um, in the Old Testament, fathers are held accountable for the instruction and correction of children. And fathers who did not were held in, uh, they were in, in trouble. And they may actually lose their children. I don't know if they ever practiced this, but if you look at the law, that if there was a rebellious son and he wouldn't listen to his parents after repeated warnings, he took him out to the elders of the city. If he wouldn't repent, they stoned him. So I was pretty strict. <laughs> I remember that that reminds me when I was in Dr. Rakestraw's class at uh, Bethel Seminary and Rakestraw and I both have a dis, dis we don't like reconstru- Christian reconstructionism 
Christian Reconstructionism says that we're going to establish the kingdom by instituting Old Testament law and forcing everybody, whether they're Christian or not, to obey the Old Testament law. And then once we've taken dominion over the earth and forced everybody to obey the Old Testament law, then we'll have the kingdom. And so um, Dr. Akestraw and I, who were the only two there, there's like 20 or 30 students, but no, nobody else had heard of this. And so we were going back and forth telling what they teach. He says, uh, I says, yeah, they want to reinstitute slavery. And then he says, yeah, and they want to reinstitute this. And I said, yeah, and they want to reinstitute that. And Dr. Akestraw said, yeah, and they want to reinstitute uh, executing rebellious teenagers. And then I, I said, well, maybe they got a point on that one. <laughs> No, just kidding. <laughs> no, no, no. Never mind. I, I don't mean that. Everybody laughed. All right. Um, Leif, now i got one for you. 1 Peter 5, 9 and 10. I ended up writing a paper for that class that I had with Dr. Rakestraw on Christian Reconstructionism, and it's now posted on our website. He told me back then that I should get it published. Well, finally, I just published it myself. Uh, and it's under uh, art, uh, CICMinistry.org, and then you'll click on Articles, and then there's a section called Scholarly. And under the Scholarly, there's a, a whole um, essay on Christian Reconstructionism. And in that, I what I do is I take their major premise, which is that we have a dominion mandate to take dominion over the nations, and I show that the premise isn't scriptural. Then having refuted the premise, then the whole movement really doesn't ha- doesn't have any validity. So you can read that if you want to go to that place on the web that came out of that uh, class that I was in. Okay, 1 Peter 5, 9 and 10. I resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Yeah, it's a kind of an interesting one. It talks about the devil going around as a roaring lion. Resist him, firm in the faith, knowing that your same experiences of suffering are being experienced by brethren in the world. And the question is, who are the brethren in the world? Some of you, you went through Peter on Wednesday night. Did anybody, anybody was in that class that remember the answer you came up with? I'm, I'm, see, I'm wondering whether it either means other Christians in other parts scattered around Asia Minor, or I would assume it would mean Jewish people who haven't been converted, who are also being persecuted for being Jewish. I'm not sure. I'd have to look it up. But the, what's that? Yeah. And after you have suffered for a little while, God of all grace called you to his eternal glory in Christ, who himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish. So after you have suffered for a little while, God will perfect, confirm, and strengthen you. So there Peter explicitly says that suffering is the Lord's discipline to help us grow. Explicitly says so. Alright? So it is something that we can expect as Christians. Um, William Lane says, um, yeah, he says if we have an exemption from corrective discipline, then we're illegitimate children. Um, he says the term nothoi, which only occurs here in the New Testament, must be understood in its ancient legal sense as a description of those who do not enjoy the privileges of the family nor the protection of the father. They are also denied by law the rights of inheritance, which belong exclusively, 
exclusively to those who are huyo, legitimate sons. Um, so, that's what that word means. So, the conclusion that we are to come to then is that all Christians who have been adopted into the family of God are subject to discipline by the Lord. And that discipline may come in different forms and circumstances, but somehow or another it has to do with affliction or having obstacles to overcome. Okay? And that if we respond appropriately, which is going to be what we're going to talk about a little bit next week, that this will also ultimately yield the peaceable fruit of righteousness, it says in Hebrews. What would be the wrong way to respond to the Lord's discipline? What's that? Grumble? Okay, yeah, grumbling. That's a Numbers 14. Remember the Old Testament wilderness wanderers? They were being disciplined by the Lord, so they grumbled. Yeah, they complained. What would have, what would be another wrong way that this warned about in Hebrews? Apostasy. Yeah, yeah, apostasy. Uh, they may look around and say, you know, I didn't have to go through all this when I wasn't a Christian. You know, I've got friends out there, and they'll invite me back to the party. Why go through all of this affliction and difficulty when I could just go out with the world? And then, you know, when you're in the world, you don't have to resist the lust of the flesh, the lust of the ice, the boastful pride of life. You just go for it, right? It's a lot easier. But, what's the problem with that? (laughs) It's a bad retirement plan. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, you'll be you'll feel you'll be full of conviction, guilt, misery, sorrow, and I have seen people backslide, and I've talked to them when they came back out of it, and they said it doesn't work. I couldn't go back and pretend like I didn't know any better, so they're everybody having fun, and they'd be sitting there guilty. So. Might as well just serve God. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the side that you really are the Lord's. He, he didn't let you go enjoy it. He made you come back. So that's a little warning. Yeah, Sam, then we'll be done. The most comforting thought to me in this, in this discussion about this is that in verse 10, the second, the last part, it says, so that we may share in his holiness. So we may share in his holiness. Amen. 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 So if we need a good analogy, be if we need discipline to do anything worthwhile in this life, whether it's to have a career job or to be an athlete or to be a soldier or to, to be whatever it is we need to be or want to be, if we need discipline for that, how much more do we need discipline to share in God's holiness? So next week we'll pick up here.